0: Hey, it's Jess Massa. Thanks for listening to this episode of WTF Health. All this talk about the future of health is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Transparent, OneDrop, Wheel, Pfizer, Vita Health, Utopia, 120 over 80 marketing, and Bayer G4A. And don't forget, if you want to check out the video version of this interview, head on over to my YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com slash WTFHealth. Hey, everybody. It's Jessica DeMossa with WTF Health. What's the future of health? I am talking to the who's who of health tech and healthcare innovation. And today I've got exciting news coming out of Boulder Care. They have just raised a $36 million Series B, bringing their funding total up to $50 million. And the woman to tell us all about it is your founder and CEO, Stephanie Strong. Stephanie, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much, Jess. It's great to be here. So this is so exciting for you guys, and congratulations on this fundraise. For those who don't know Boulder Care, you guys are an opioid and alcohol use disorder telehealth clinic. So you guys help people who are overcoming addiction and you're specifically focused on low income, marginalized, underserved, incarcerated people, pregnant women, I mean, those who are really, I mean, kind of left out of traditional healthcare, and in particular, this addiction treatment space. So I'm so excited to talk to you about this fundraise. Why don't you start us off there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the raise, shout out the investors that are in it, and give us a high-level description of what you do at Boulder Care.
1: Absolutely. We are so grateful to have raised this capital to move our mission forward. Um, with Ming Venture Partners U.S., Lardal Million Lives Fund, Goodwater Capital, and our repeat investors and supporters, First Round Capital, Graycroft, uh, Tusk Venture Partners, and Gangels. So, very excited to use this funding to more than triple our care delivery team, uh, continue expanding with partners like health plans, uh, both Medicaid and commercial plans, and large employers, and bring the solution to the 40 million people and growing who need care for their substance use disorder.
0: That's awesome Stephanie I'm so excited for you. So, high level introduce us to Boulder Care then. So, telehealth clinic so telehealth based, you guys focus on medication assisted treatment, which is a little bit different than like a, you know a talk therapy alone type thing. So, why don't you do you dive in and explain that to us? That's exactly right. The
1: most evidence-based solution we have available to us for addiction treatment is medications like buprenorphine or suboxone yet they're vastly under-prescribed. And we know that just having access to these medications cuts the all-cause mortality rate by half or more. And people on long-term treatment, it's miraculous, right? The statistics are really incredible. Um, And long-term treatment, really the longer that you're taking medications, the better people do in terms of their clinical outcomes, things like emergency department admissions and hospitalizations, but also what we call functional outcomes, things like quality of life, people setting goals around regaining custody of their children or getting back to a job that they love. And this medication helps block the opioid receptor in the brain so that people don't get excruciating withdrawal symptoms or cravings and instead can feel stable and begin to make other changes that help with their overall health and wellness. So that's very much what we're focused on with all the wraparound services to help with those clinical and non-clinical needs
0: as well all right i want to hear about those wraparounds that was exactly what i was going to ask you because i understand i mean like what you just talked about like okay helping get a child back out of custody like that that is that's that takes a a different set of skills than just like here let's go through a an addiction treatment program here let's take some medication so explain some of the wraparound services that you guys offer
1: exactly right. We think this medication is critical, but it's not always sufficient, and we want to be there for people who are engaging with us for months or even years for any needs that arise that we can help support. So we've got dedicated teams that are multidisciplinary and working together toward that end. Um, clinicians who can prescribe medications with expertise. They're focused on both medical and behavioral health. Uh, A role we call a care advocate, someone who can help navigate, including to in-house kind of services like social services, but also local community partners, grassroots organizations and meetings, um, anything that someone may need. And finally, a peer recovery specialist, a really important part of our model in that we bring folks with lived experience and addiction to meet our patients with empathy And they also help us develop a model that's truly patient-centered and drop some of the stigmatizing practices that have been so characteristic of treatment in the past. So these folks help provide resources, um, help people set goals and break them down in ways that are really manageable for them and are always there to text or hop on a call anytime someone needs some extra support.
0: I'd see a little bit more about the actual like addiction treatment management side of this. So like, what's the clinical staff look like there? Do you guys own your own providers? Are you using them from another service? Like, how, how does all of that work?
1: We do. We employ some of the most competent and mission driven and empathetic people I've had the privilege of working with. Um, I think people who are drawn to this type of medicine recognize that the patients we're serving have been let down many times before and. Do need a really constant source of support and encouragement. So we bring on folks who have worked in rural care settings and federally qualified health centers and primary care been part of the safety net system in their community, as well as psychiatric nurse practitioners and physician experts, um, all working together to develop a new model of care. Uh, we think it's really important to put out evidence and research. So a lot of um, our team is also focused in that regard. Working with over a million dollars from the NIH to support research and education efforts. Um, so, having our own team in house is a really important part of the quality of care we hope to offer and the innovative model that we're looking to build.
0: And one of the more interesting things that I read um, as I was reading the press release about your fundraise was that 95%, more than 95%, of your company's revenue is due to in network reimbursement. And predominantly that's coming from managed Medicaid plans. And that kind of blew me away, Stephanie, because like I know, you, you know, you, the, your company, like in all the the literature that talks about it, you're in your website and things like that. It's like there is this this supreme focus on this low income, um, underserved population. But I did not realize how much of your business is just that. So talk a little bit about that population, because like. I mean, you guys are working in county jails in the Pacific Northeast. I mean, I read that you guys are working with the Low Income Housing Institute. I mean, so you guys are really are working you know, in a broad way to engage this population. Say a little bit about you know, this, this particular population, that managed Medicaid population and how they're experiencing opioid addiction treatment today and like what you're trying to do to change it. Because like, I really don't know a lot about that particular part of the market.
1: Well, I think that's just a a sign, given how plugged in you are to digital health, of how um, early some of our efforts are in innovating in in Medicaid. Um, There's some, I think, skepticism and maybe misconceptions about the use of technology in folks who are low income or rural Americans, um, those who are older. But we look at that as a challenge that absolutely can and should be solved with health innovation, and we're really proud to have over a quarter of our patients be from rural areas, over 80% of them be low income, um, and recognize the impact that we're able to have. The Problems that are costing America $500 billion a year and the opioid crisis are very much tied to the most complex cases and the sickest patients who aren't able to get care. And because it's so challenging to work with Medicaid plans, um, you know, have the compliance and regulatory structures in place in order to bill and and work with these plans, many digital health companies aren't doing it. And that's where we want to uh, show that there is a really innovative path here for many of the new private companies that are coming into the Medicaid space. So when we say managed Medicaid, we're talking about private firms like Anthem, uh, Molina, Sentine, who are very motivated to use data and analytics to draw lines between health outcomes and cost savings and reimburse with these creative value-based structures and are managing state and federal funds in order to do that. So that's a space we think we can really make inroads. And certainly in, in terms of solving for a need, it's the most underserved for addiction treatment and specialty care.
0: And that is so commendable to me because it's like, I mean, I was gonna ask you and I was gonna ask you why did you decide to go into this market, but I think the last the last series of sentences that you just said really articulate that need that it is really underserved and that it's like it is complicated to get into. So I mean, kudos to you for making that deliberate decision to serve that population. I also know, though, you guys are also working in that in that big, large, large employer space. I know you've got Anthem as a client, Regents as a client, Comcast, Hewlett Packard. So talk a little bit about that. Like, I mean, how much of your business is made up with with that type of client base? And, you know, how how is that going? How is it different than what you're doing with this low income population or is it even different?
1: I actually think you're on to something with the end of that question, that we haven't observed a ton of differences between the average American who's finding us from their employer-sponsored insurance and those who are finding us through the community-based partners uh, with Medicaid coverage. And I think that is sort of speaking to the working poor, the middle class um, people who are you know, potentially working in a warehouse or distribution center or in retail and not making enough per hour to pay for some of the exorbitant costs of healthcare services like a rehab facility, or even a copay on an outpatient visit, that can be a, a real burden and a barrier to seeking care. Um, when we know that payers win when people with untreated opioid use disorder get treatment. In fact, those patients are 550% more expensive to the health plan when untreated. So it's our mission and goal to help quantify that for health plans. So they recognize that by paying preventatively for these services and helping people stay in long-term treatment, uh, ultimately they could save 25 dollars to $30,000 per patient per year.
0: That's incredible. So I mean, okay, so what is your model like them? Because it, your members are mostly pay, not paying anything out of pocket to, right. so that they can't get the treatment that they need. There is this incentive for health plans to be involved to obviously save, save those dollars down the road. But so, so how do you guys make your money? Are you guys in like, is it like a fee for service kind of thing? Or is it more of a value based care design? Like talk to me about your revenue model
1: partner with now dozens of health plans, and um, really we work with them however is most comfortable for kind of where they are as a plan and what their goals are. So that may be very different for a regional Medicaid plan than for a large blue um, with customers across the US and several employer accounts. But generally we are always moving toward more of a value-based structure recognizing that fee-for-service has done a disservice to this space by um, even more so than potentially other healthcare incentivizing pretty perverse outcomes. So there are a number of restrictions on prescribing for buprenorphine treatment. One of them limits the number of patients any provider can see at one time, which means if you're running a small clinic and you're kind of full-on capacity, you're Revenue incentive is to bring in patients who are coming to lots of visits and getting lots of urine drug tests and driving high utilization and discharging folks from care who are maybe doing a bit better or have so many barriers in their life that they aren't able to make those constant demands. So that's resulted in a lot of people not getting care or staying in it. And what we can do with health plans is bundle our services together under alternative payment models that reimburse for great outcomes Um, and retention and care rather than utilization of things that have a billing code attached to them, but aren't linking to great outcomes. So generally we are getting more than half of our revenue from these alternative payment arrangements and more and more developing these partnerships with plans to um, get into value-based care and risk sharing. So we expect that as we're getting more sophisticated with our ability to show and kind of demonstrate those outcomes, health plans are also getting more and more receptive to contracting in these alternative models. So it's a really great time to be building in this space.
0: Good. I like to hear that from you. I like to hear about that trend starting to take greater hold. I'm a big value-based care fan myself. Um, I want to hear a little bit about, from from a scaling standpoint, Boulder Care. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the future for for a second here. You know, I've gotten into this conversation plenty of times with my colleague, Matthew Holt, who we have to shout out here for connecting us. Um, but but I, I do want to um, ask you a question that he and I, we always get into this debate. Something like you guys, like where you guys are so singularly focused on opioid and alcohol use disorder, you know, as you scale, like, is the future of your business to become part of, like... A bigger mental health offering that's much more general, or are you gonna to continue to be a standalone clinic? And I mean, you can see examples of this outside of health tech, right? I mean, especially in this space, you have your standalone treatment facilities, or you have, you know, a, a hospital that provides a general, you know, swath of services. You know, for you, when you think about the future of your business today as you just announced the series B fundraise, you know, do you have in your head kind of a, a direction that you're headed as far as where this ultimately goes? It's a really important question and
1: one that our team rivets on because we ultimately want to help make healthcare better at the macro level, Um, not just succeed internally, but to help contribute to the broader system um, and that systems level change that I think we all desperately want as, as entrepreneurs. And in the near term, we don't want to build a silo or contribute to the problem of fragmentation. So part of our model is to partner very intentionally across the continuum of care with other digital providers and within network um, in-person services. So hospital systems, EDs, you mentioned our work in the Oregon justice system with people who are incarcerated, bridging all of these gaps for the better, more continuous journey for a patient. But long-term that's also setting us up to be building these ecosystems and anchoring into communities in, I think a pretty impactful way. We're also building these relationships with patients who have lost trust in the healthcare system, aren't accessing care at all, and have so many needs, um, both in primary care, in women's reproductive health, um, other related conditions like hepatitis C or HIV from shared needle use. So when we actually are building trust with those folks and getting them into care for the first time and keeping them in care as we do for 12 months or longer, we have so many opportunities to help with other healthcare needs, and we'd like to continue to be the home where people are seeking care um, for you know, low-income Americans who don't have a safety net, so broadening our offering, as we've already done today, by adding additional services and for potentially really being a standalone company, but one that is incredibly comprehensive and collaborative.
0: Okay, fair enough. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, <laughs> I would have said that regardless of the answer, Stephanie, you know that, right? Um, I Okay, I have to ask about I have to ask about some recent news. Bicycle Health just announced fifty million dollar raise. That means they've raised about eighty million total. You, they are in the, in a very similar space as you guys. Opioid use disorder, medication assisted treatment. You know, first kind of focus, same thing. There are others in this space as well. We talked about Ophelia, you and I, before we we started rolling here. I mean, so how do you guys see yourself as as stand apart from these other companies that are doing the same thing? And I have a second part to that question, too. And you may want to answer that first. Like, help us understand, those of us who may not understand specifically within mental health or or telemental health, this opioid use disorder treatment space, just how big is it that there needs to be multiple different flavors of this and multiple different companies doing this? Is there room for all of you? Yes.
1: Um, Unfortunately, it is a huge market. It is under... Uh, counted. So we know that at least 40 million people have substance use disorder, but that 9 and 10 don't seek treatment. And coming out of COVID, experts think these numbers have doubled. And so we can't possibly grow fast enough. Mm -hmm. Um, None of us can to meet this need. And we're really supportive of all of our peers who are providing evidence-based care and helping to address this problem. Um, I do think, you know, Boulder has a number of uh, things that we you know, look to our our team as differentiators um, and kind of paving our way. One of them is, as we've discussed, our ability to work with health plans. Um, We think it's really important, particularly for those who can't afford care out of pocket, that we have coverage with their health plan uh, being able to develop dozens of relationships and you know move state by state with greater than eighty percent coverage in all of our markets with both commercial and Medicaid plans and largely under alternative payment arrangements. Uh, these relationships take time to build and take really high quality outcomes in order to move forward. And we've had one hundred percent customer retention year over year since inception. Um, so we are serving a, a specific part of the population, a large and growing one. Um, We're adding services for things like um, special programs for, you know, women who are pregnant, for those who are incarcerated in the justice system, Um, more and more areas for us to grow and expand alongside other peers who are working and tackling different parts of the country or different subpopulations. And when we were starting out in 2017, it was really difficult to attract venture funding to this space particularly for, you know, Medicaid um, and B2B to C models. So the fact that now there are a few competitors or really peers and allies who are raising money and growing, we look, to that as kind of a sign that this is finally becoming an established category and it's going to start changing the trajectory of this problem in our country.
0: Absolutely. I feel the same way about that. I was like, I I saw that news and I was like, you know, somebody might look at that and be like, oh, this just totally stole Boulder Curious Thunder. And I'm like, I don't see it as like a a thunder that is stealing. I feel like it's another, another bolt of lightning has struck. And it's just, it's just more in this storm of of funding that's helping support this space, which I think is really important. I want to ask one other quick thing about scale. Scaling. And this is something new that i just like I'm starting to ask a lot of the telehealth-based companies that I talk to. Future of telehealth is kind of a up in the air right now. You know, a lot of issues facing it. So I wanted to ask you two 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 pieces of this because I think you guys might be impacted. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the virtual prescribing piece of this? I mean, we've seen some companies get into some trouble recently doing this and there's there's an anticipated blowback from that. And so are you guys at all concerned about that as far as being a company that does online prescribing and medication management?
1: No, uh, there's always been sort of the, the challenge of prescribing buprenorphine or suboxone as a controlled substance because it's a bit counterintuitive that the solution for, Um, addiction to substances is a medication or a drug. Um, And so we've been fighting that for a long time, long before telehealth was even part of the question. Um, You know, in-person brick-and-mortar care is where I started in this work. And we've seen so much progress every year at the federal level, um, legislation that expanded access to prescribing, let nurse practitioners and advanced practice practitioners prescribe rather than just physicians, lift the cap on the number of people that Uh, a given provider can treat, so all of these things are pacing in the right direction, Um, but probably the most impactful and sweeping reform was during the public health emergency when uh, this in-person visit that was previously required for prescribing was lifted, and there's a lot of just discussion happening now at the state and federal level about what happens after the public health emergency. We're hopeful that this is an opportunity for the regulators to revisit policies that were written long before telehealth was contemplated and before Biden and his administration and the administration prior agreed, we need to change the restrictions that you know, prevent people from getting access to addiction treatment to solve the opioid crisis. So we know that that is the intention and we want you know, all of these policies for the spirit of you know, why they exist to protect patient safety we'd just like to be part of that dialogue. So we're publishing research, working with the NIH and others, working with Oregon's Health Authority as they decriminalize drug use as part of Measure 110, which is a really innovative new policy program. Um, And of course, following all of the state and local and federal guidelines and how we've architected our model, um, as well as some quality indicators we think are also going to help companies endure. Things like partnering with in-person providers for referrals so that we can help get people in-person services if they need them. Um, like working with health plans and making sure we have checks and balances on discerning you know, payers who are making sure that we're doing the right thing for folks. Uh, so again, I think it's a great opportunity to revisit some of these policies and knowing how much patients and providers are pounding the table for this modality to exist. I, I don't believe we're going to um, completely do away with it. We'll just have to think about a more modern framework for regulating it.
0: The other piece of this is that state licensure restriction that was lifted as well as part of the public health emergency. Concerns on that? Because I can't imagine, and again, like learning about your space as we're talking, that there are a lot of addiction management professionals like scattered throughout the country. And so, I mean, this is one of those like classic, to borrow the phraseology from Russ Glass from Headspace Health, it's like the supply demand issue of mental health. There's just a limited amount, a limited supply of providers. State licensure, any concerns? I mean, that, that's something that from what I'm hearing on the street, most likely likely is going to get put back in place. Plans around that?
1: Just agreeing with you that it likely will be put back in place and knowing that every state has their own uh, systems for regulating providers. We do get all of our clinicians licensed in every state that they'll be seeing patients and have not taken advantage of the COVID waivers in that regard, but it is a pain point. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Especially for, you know, a a discipline like addiction medicine where um, providers you know, have a federal waiver called the XDEA on top of all of their other medical licensures that regulates how they can prescribe medications. Um, and fewer than 5% of all clinicians in the US have this certification. 90% of them are not prescribing for any patients after six months because of all of the burdens and barriers that we put on community-based clinicians trying to treat addiction. So there's scarcity, but there are problems that we can solve by being a better place for these clinicians to work, to feel really well-supported, um, and to take care of all of that back office work so that they can just focus on building relationships.
0: All right, what's ahead for you guys real quick? Boulder Care, just close that Series B. I think you've, you've trickled little pieces of it throughout this conversation, Stephanie, but like, I mean, in addition to you know, increasing the clinical staff, adding more wraparound services, those special programs, I think you had mentioned for the incarcerated and the pregnant women, like what else is, is coming coming ahead for us that we can look out for? We're grateful
1: to be building, I think, one of the best teams in healthcare. Um, we expect to grow um, into a national provider and continue doing so with leading outcomes. So the fact that 90% of patients are in our care after a month and 70% after 12 months um, is more than triple the industry average. That we is. are just going to continue on those North Star metrics, focusing on quality and in doing so, that helps us build deeper relationships with health plans, um, with community organizations and referral partners in our markets who trust us to send patients for care uh, and just becoming a leading and, and trusted name in treatment for substance use disorder for the people who need it most.
0: All right, go get them, Stephanie. We're we're supporting you from over here. Thank you so much for stopping by. Congratulations again on the Series B raise. It sounds like you're going to do great work with that funding, and I mean you're already doing great work. But thank you again for stopping by and sharing the news with us. Excited to talk to you. Thank
1: you, Jess. Likewise. All right. We
0: will keep our eye on you, Stephanie Strong, CEO of Boulder Care. And to find out more about what she's up to, you're going to have to subscribe to the YouTube channel so that you never miss a conversation with the who's who of health tech as they are changing the way that we do healthcare. You can find it over there at YouTube.com slash WTF Health. I'm Jessica DeMasa. Thanks again, Stephanie Strong. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Hey, it's Jess. If you're looking for more news on what's going on in health tech, I've got another show airing on this channel called Health Tech Deals. In this one, famous healthcare curmudgeon Matthew Holt joins me twice a week to weigh in on the biggest funding deals, M&A activity, and exits in health tech. Just look for episodes labeled Health Tech Deals.